Events of the past 12 months have once again highlighted that Australia still has a long way to go when it comes to our relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. 20 years on from the Reconciliation March of 2000, the path to reconciliation is still one that as a nation we have a long way to travel. In that spirit of reconciliation, I would like to offer my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, both past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the UX Australia podcast. I am joined today by Lauren Isaacson. Lauren, hello. Hi. So uh, it's a good evening for you. Whereabouts do you join us from? Uh, I am on the west coast of Canada in Vancouver, British Columbia. Wow. Okay. And um, how are things there right now? Uh... I hear it's doing better in Australia that you took the lockdown much more seriously than we did. Uh, it's it's okay. Mm. Uh, things are stable. We are able to go out um, for better or worse. Um, hospitals are not completely overwhelmed. Okay. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, it's as far as as a, as places are concerned, we're doing okay. Um, so, so yeah, it could be much worse. That we had Australia and Canada, um, are close in terms of population size. I think you're a, a, a little bigger than we are and, and we both have a peculiar population distribution, yours in that you're sort of concentrated along the southern, um, edge of, uh, the country on the border with the US, most of the population is sort of concentrated down there, I believe, um, with vast empty spaces to the north. And um, we obviously have vast empty spaces in the interior of, um, of Australia. But at one point early on in um, the pandemic, Australia and Canada were roughly on par in terms of the overall number of cases and the and the rate at which they were improving. Um, sorry, the rate at which the, the case numbers were increasing. Um, and as you noted, we took quite different um, approaches. Um, yeah. When you compare the trajectories of uh, the pandemic subsequent to that, um, the difference is, is quite noticeable. So I'm fortunate to be um, in a country that took it as seriously as we did, um, both at a, at a governmental level uh, and in Australia, that sort of mostly comes down to the, the various state governments, um, but also individuals taking it seriously as well. It's good. Yeah. It, it could be, like I said, it could be much, much worse. Um, it could be a few hours south. Yeah, it could be a few hours south. My family is a few hours south. I'm actually American. I moved to Canada about 10 years ago. Okay. And so I have um, my fam. So my father and my mother are in Los Angeles, which is, which is really not doing right well. Now. And yes. then my sister and her family are in Berkeley, California, near San Francisco. And they're, mm. they're also not doing great better than LA. Um, but luckily, uh, my father and my sister and my brother-in-law, they are all considered to be frontline workers. My father works at a hospital and my sister and my, 
and my brother-in-law are both veterinarians. So they both got access to the vaccine. So that's, okay. that's a plus. That's a that's good, good thing. So this is um, one of the differences that at, at least, um, you know, uh, the US has moved quite quickly um, to get a vaccine rolled out, um, giving emergency approval to two or three now. Um, no vaccines have been issued in Australia yet, um, despite assurances from our government that we are front of the queue um, <laughs> with over 120 million uh, vaccinations having been carried out around the world in something like 75 different countries, um, zero in Australia so far. But, um, yeah. yeah, it's been very slow to roll out in Canada as well. So, um, so we're not holding our breath as to when we're going to be able to open the borders or have access to the vaccine. So we'll see what happens. Yes. Now, obviously, uh, the pandemic had a major disruptive influence on a whole range of activities in our lives. Some were shut down completely and some we had to find other ways of doing. One of those areas, which is going to be of um, rather central interest to the audience at the Design Research Conference um, in a little over a month, is actually conducting research. Now, you've been uh, conducting research remotely for a number of years, um, were you prepared? Were you prepared for that shift when the when the lockdowns hit? Well, I mean, from a um, procedural point of view, from a from a methodological point of view, um, I was fine. Uh, I was very familiar with doing research online. That was my primary method. It was very rare that I was ever asked to conduct research on per in person because the costs associated with that are so much higher with the travel and the time associated with and getting people into the room and um, the videography and everything like that. It's so, there's, there's so much more involved when you need to conduct research in person. Um, so it wasn't very often I was ever asked to do that. Now as a freelancer, uh, it definitely affected my business a lot. So, um, so I, most of what I do is I subcontract. So when research and design agencies, they have more work than they know what to do with, they reach out to me and they say, hey, can you handle this project for us? And, uh, and then I, I come in and, and I act on behalf of the company. You know, they give me their, e they give me like a company email address, everything. And as far as the client is concerned, I am one of their staff members. Mm -hmm. And so, so from, the, from, but, that requires them to have more work than they know what to do with. And yeah. then when the pandemic hit, that was no longer the case. Yeah. So it was it was six months of, of no work at all, which was really, it was tough to go through. But, um, but you know, you, as a freelancer, you have to be prepared for those, for those fallow periods that yeah. are just, it's part of the cycle of business. Um, it I, it could have happened to me without a pandemic, but that there just wasn't any work to go around. Um, yeah. But it there was definitely association there. So has that has that turned around? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> since September I've I've been working nonstop, which is great. Um, Change. Not yeah, it's it. So uh, I've definitely uh, been making up for lost time uh, and. Uh, trying to get in as much work as I can uh, for this year to try and and make up for for the loss of last year. But there's only really I can only take on like one project at a time. Anything more than that, it's it gets to be way too stressful. Yeah. 
What what shifted in September? Do you think? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, so in September, I got asked directly by a, a tech company by Airtable to do work for them, mm -hmm. um, and that was based off of a referral. But the agencies started coming back to me. Um, around October, November, I think a lot of their clients were starting to look at uh, at their end of year budget uh -huh. and realize they'd spent zero money and that they had to spend it before the end of the year. Yep. So, okay. uh, so a lot of projects came through that way. Um, there also may have been some companies who um, who were who had who suddenly suddenly they were up to back to normal levels, but they had had to lay off staff yes. um, during that period of time. Yep. And so that could have happened as well. I'm I'm not sure, but there is there's probably a, a few factors there as to why it suddenly like went back up again. It feels as well as though a lot of companies learnt the lesson that their access to people mm -hmm. was suddenly global. Um, yeah. If if they don't have people coming into an office to work together, then where those people dial in from remotely suddenly becomes far less important. I mean, have you seen a, a, a shift at all in in where your work is coming from? Um, almost all of my work comes to the United States, and okay. uh, most of the places that that asked me to work over the last few months uh, were return clients. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so one is is one out of Ottawa, but the client is is in the U.S. Um, another one was uh, an American agency working on behalf of an American social media company. Yeah, okay. and um, so yeah, it's not like I'm getting asked by people in Europe or Australia to do work for them. This time zone still exists. Yeah, yeah they do. Yeah. They do. Uh, so, uh, although I do tell like people in uh, in the U.K. and just like, well. I start work when you're shutting down. So that's a really good time for me to catch people after their work day. Although right now, I mean, people will come in during their lunch break or whenever they have an hour free and they'll come and do an hour long interview. And that's not too much of an ask. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the nice things about doing the research remotely is that yes, you have global access, but you also have easier access to people who are generally very busy and don't have time to step away from the computer. Yeah, I, I would imagine having having a larger portion of people working from home mm. um, might afford you greater access to people. Yeah, that, that definitely helps. Um, people can be a lot more flexible. Mm. Uh, used to be in traditional uh, qualitative research, it was done after hours at a facility, uh, it was, it, there was only specific times that you could do it. Mm -hmm. uh, it took a long time because you had to set aside the time. People had to set aside the time to get to the facility. Mm -hmm. uh, if people were outside of an easy commuter, commuting distance to the facility, that means they weren't coming. Yeah. Uh, even if they were perfect for the study. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I used to work at a market research facility and the amount of times that in, in Los Angeles. And so traffic is a huge barrier in Los Angeles. And so, yeah. so many people would call 15, 
20 minutes before the interview, I'm stuck in traffic. I don't know. I am trying to make it because that's what we tell people to do. It's just like, if you think you're going to be late, call and we'll tell you whether or not to keep coming or turn around and go home. And so we'd have to like check with the moderators. Just like, okay, we got this person. This is who they are. This is their profile. They're on their way. They're just going to be a little late. Should we hold out for them or should we tell them to go home? And, and they, they give us a yes or no either way. Mm. Um, I find it also from an accessibility standpoint, people with disabilities, they have a hard time um, getting out, leaving the house, people with chronic pain, chronic fatigue, um, uh, motor, uh, motor function disabilities. It's much easier for them to join from home, from the comfort of their home. Uh, yep. I, uh, that's much easier. Mm-hmm. Um, I find myself talking to people of different socioeconomic backgrounds a lot more Yep. Uh, because of that. And there are, um, there are certain considerations with that as well. There was one person I talked to and we were doing all of the, we were doing everything on video and I was uh, sharing my screen and they were sharing their screen mm-hmm. and doing all this kind of stuff. But one of the people that we had, she was from a lower income bracket and uh, she was not in a great neighborhood. And we were talking about walking and she was really great because she gave us a different perspective on walking where everyone else was just yeah. like, yeah, walking's great. Walking is something everybody should do. And she was just like, walking is dangerous. Walking <laughs> is something I don't do on my own ever. Why on earth would I walk? Yep. Um, and, but she, because her broadband was so limited, we had, mm-hmm. uh, we weren't getting a good connection. So just like, you know what? Just forget it. Turn off your, your video. I'll turn off my video. We'll talk this way. It's going to yep. be fine. And, and we got a lot of great insights without the face-to-face aspect of it. Sure. And I'm so glad that we didn't cut that short and that we just accom- we just made the accommodations we needed to get yep. her insights because she provided a perspective that we weren't getting from anybody else. And that was a, a very important perspective. We've, we've seen at Meld Studios, we've, we've seen through the, the course of 2020 um, our ability to more conveniently, more readily um, conduct research with people from all over the country um, and from other parts of the world, um, you know, doing some work with a, a, a software company who has, um, you know, clients and customers all around the world. Um, and, and not having to think about the logistics of, you know, do we get on a plane? Do we go somewhere? Yeah. Is it worth it going to that location? How many customers can we see in that location? Does it make sense to have a cluster? You know, like all of that kind of stuff that you might otherwise do and just go, look, let's talk to that person in Bangladesh. Let's talk to that person in, in Bangladesh. So much easier let's now. talk to that person in um in Malaysia, let's talk to those folks on the on the west coast of the US, as well as this group in in Sydney and Melbourne, and you know, like you just put pins on a map and go, let's let's dial them up. Um, the the flip side to that though is that we're completely dependent on um, on the technology, and we had another project which was actually to look at delivery of services for people who were unemployed and technically not connected um and and that created a raft of issues um in how we reached them and how we were able to go through this process of of engaging with them um and subsequently obviously uh created um some interesting perspectives around the value proposition of the service which was intended to be delivered electronically Mm, so sure 
the, but there's the sort of swings and roundabouts going on there with some of these things. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I keep mentioning to people when I do this this talk about remote research, and just you have to remember, the internet is not distributed equally. No. So, if you want to get, uh, if there's certain populations that you specifically want to reach, you have to make accommodations around those audiences. Mm-hmm. And that may mean that you do a phone interview. Mm-hmm. That may mean that you do um, maybe just via mobile or uh, a mobile ethnography where they're doing a diary study using their mobile phone and they're showing you their experience from their perspective using the tools that they have available to them. Yeah. And there's lots of great tools available to do that. And I find them very powerful and, and I really look forward to being able to, to use them more in the future. Mm-hmm. What are some of your sort of go-to tools? Um, I use whatever the client I'm subcontracting for um, asks asks me to use. Normally, it's just Zoom. Uh, As much as, you know, and I have problems with that. Uh, I, uh, from coming from from a more traditional market research background, I'm more used to uh, there being just really strong uh, rules and barriers around the visibility of the client. And when you're using a typical Zoom meeting like this, yep. I try and tell the client, I'm just say, like, okay, you're going to turn off your camera. You're going to edit your name. So it just says observer or period or nothing. Yeah. Um, you're going to do this. But then it turns, but then you have like a bunch of black boxes and then yep. you and I talking like this. And then it turns into just a really creepy meeting. Yes. So I really do prefer using tools that have a um, that have a virtual back room, and they cost. Yep. So you have so a lot of the places I work for, they're not prepared to shoulder that cost, or they've already worked around it. So mm-hmm. one of the agencies I work with, uh, they use Zoom, but they have a they, but they have a, a back end that they built themselves, and so I just click a button, it launches a, a separate URL, and that and then it just creates a live feed of the Zoom meeting to a virtual back room that they built for their clients yeah. to observe the research live. Oh wow! Okay. And so that helps a lot, um, yeah. but there are a lot of tools that use Zoom and have that kind of same function where they can have that virtual back room. Mm. They are also able to ping me, so they can direct. So the clients can direct message me if there is certain questions that. Like if something the they want to follow up on a certain statement that the that the participant said, or mm-hmm. they have a, another question that they want me to ask, they can communicate me with live uh, communicate with me live. Now I have seen that abused. Yeah, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Um, I know some agencies I work with they just shut down. They're just like, no, we do not want the client communicating with you live during the session. But I usually like have slack open and so they're just like hey you can just dm me on slack if you have something that you want that you want me to say and um say or ask um but yeah there's i try to like make sure that i preface i'm just like this is available to you but please don't abuse it don't i can only handle one conversation at a time and so if you're pinging me like a hundred million times during the session I'm going to be very distracted and it's going to be really hard for me to really um, be present for the conversation trying to have with the participant. So sometimes it's just like, it's, you just want to like say, just calm down. You know, it's, it's in the guide. I'm going to get there. Just sit tight. Mm 
Um, <laughs> other times it's just like, that's, it's good, but it kind of distracts from the, the objectives of what we're trying to do and we have limited time. So I know that's of interest to you, but, I, but it, it's outside of the scope of what we're trying to study here. So it's, it, it's hard to manage that if, because uh, sometimes you have clients that they're just, they're excited. They are excited about the research. They have so much they want to know. They're very detail oriented. And, and so it's, it's nice that they're so excited, but they, there needs to be some restraint practiced for the quality of the research sure. for just my own sanity. Sure. What about on the, um, on the, the far side of the research, Lauren, when you're um, analyzing what you've seen and heard, like are there? Uh, love the tools I'm, that are out now. I know it's a whole other conversation, but I'm I'm really curious. I I do feel like we've seen some um, some progress over the last sort of twelve or eighteen. We totally have, and you can get ones that are very bare bones that do text and out that uh, will take a transcript, and then you can highlight and tag the transcript with whatever tags you want. And by the end, I like have a hundred million tags, but it makes it really easy for me to find stuff for when I'm doing the report. Yeah. and then there are ones that are much that are more sophisticated and act as kind of like an overall library. Now, I don't use those because I don't need a library. I just need cool. stuff for the project. Yeah. Um, but ones that are more project-based and less library and act less like a library are really good for people like me mm. that just need it for this project. And and so there's Delve tool, which I really like, which if I don't need to deliver video clips. It's awesome. It just, okay. you upload the text, you can, it timestamp, everything is, if, depending, if you've got the right transcript, if you got the one with the timestamps and you want to find that video clip later, you can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can just highlight and tag, and then you can also uh, put in the, demo, the demographics and psychographics of the person that you were interviewing. And then you can also analyze the tags by, their, uh, by demographic factors which can be very interesting as well if you have the time to really dig in. I don't usually have the time to dig in. They usually want the report like yesterday, which is like, uh-huh. okay. Yeah. Um, but then for video, it's basically the same thing with highlighting tagging, but they, it, there's a video attached to every highlight that you make. And so then you can create these highlight reels that are super powerful for the, for the client to see. So then it's not just so-and-so said this, this, and this. It's, it's now... You can watch these this video of people saying the same thing over and over again that this is a problem and it needs to be fixed. Yeah, I think we've um, we've used uh, I think it's called Decrypt for that kind of thing. You upload. A I haven't video heard of that one. You'll create a transcript and um, and then as you sort of take a segment, you you can basically manipulate the text. Yeah. Uh, so you highlight a section of the text and it gives you the section of the video and it sounds like a, a similar sort of um, tool, but it's it's been marvelous in that kind of regard. Oh, I love them so much. They're so helpful. I mean, the analysis itself is very time consuming. And so mm-hmm. if I can get help with the analysis, that's great. There are tools out there that do um, AI driven analysis, but they're very expensive and and so it's just like i like they i had a vendor pitch it to me and just like hey you could use this and it's two thousand dollars a month and i'm just like (laughs) it's not gonna happen i only use things that 
consider project. I only use things project based. It's like yeah. I use it for the project and then that's it. And I just pay for the project and then I move and I bill it back to the, to whoever's employing me if I need to other, otherwise I'm using their tools, which is more, more often the case. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's it. I'm just like, I can't do like as a freelancer, you don't do subscriptions for anything if you can help it. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it was AI driven and AI is also, it's like, I feel it's, it's early, AI's early stage, especially when it comes to, um, to kind of interpreting human thoughts and feelings. So, um, so I'm, I'm not, I don't really trust it. And I think that if I, if I did use it, I would probably be double checking a lot of things because it might be a good starting point, but I don't think it would really be good for a full analysis of of a transcript or or a study. Yeah, I think I'd be trusting it a little less than I might a junior researcher. Yeah. At the moment, um, but it sounds like I'd be paying them like one. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> precisely. Yeah. Yeah, I told them I'm just like, well, maybe if I if I can get to the point where I scale and I I can afford this, but. I don't see myself ever scaling to that point where this becomes a necessary tool for me. That, and I always assume that my clients, especially the ones that I subcontract for, if, if it's a direct client relationship where I am, where it's an end client, just like, yeah, I can subcontract out to junior researchers, some of the analysis work and things like that. That's, I don't see an cool. issue with that. Mm -hmm. um, but when I am subcontracting with an agency, I mean, that agency is looking me in the eye and, and I just assume they are expecting me to do the work. Yes. That is what they are paying me for. And, and uh, that is why we have a contract and an NDA and all that thing. And they and there's all these security measures that I have to take upon myself in order to, to, to be a, a good part of their team. So mm -hmm. I think that if I were to subcontract that out, that feels like a violation of the relationship. Yeah. 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 I think we've we've got a little way to go um, on that front before those those tools start to one day. Uh, take I'm, over, I'm sure it will, day. and we have to be ready for that day. Yeah, and I know, like the legal profession um, is uh, sort of going to face it first, and I'm, I, I know we'll learn a lot from how they deal with, you know, like uh, paralegals um, will probably be the first to go um, mm. and uh, junior lawyers, you know, their ranks will be decimated um, and replaced by technology. I worry about that too. Um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what they think, uh, you know, their ranks of partners are going to come from in yeah. 15 years' time, but I'm, I'm not sure they really Especially care. Even from a research standpoint, I mean, the, the monotonous boring stuff that you get as a junior researcher that like makes you just like, I hate my job. Just like mm -hmm. everybody hates their job when they're junior mm -hmm. is uh, that is what gives, that is your foundational work. It's like karate right. kid, you know, wax on. Yeah. Wax yeah, on. yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Right. You, you do it until it becomes second nature and yeah. Do it so then you can like look and you just go, Oh yeah, I know what this is. I know what to do. I've seen this before. I, yeah. I, I got this. Because yep. you've done it so much on this like cog level, and now you and then you slowly like get to see the entire machine. Lauren, it's been wonderful talking to you. I look forward to hearing more about it at Design Research. 
Um, thank you. Have a good evening. And we look forward to uh, speaking with you in a little over a month. Yeah, me too. All right. Bye. Bye.